Welcome to the third recap episode of the Kinsman Die podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first book, Kinsman Die, chapter by chapter. Every five episodes, I recap the prior chapters. This episode covers chapters 11 through 15. So if you've happened to start with this episode, then I suggest going back to the beginning. Here's a summary of the major plot developments so far. This is organized very loosely by POV character, POV being point of view character. Baldur, the son of Frigg and Odin, is having mysterious bad dreams which cause him to sometimes become corpse-like when he sleeps. To help Frigg solve the mystery of the dreams plaguing Baldur, she summoned her husband Odin back from his western wanderings. At roughly the same time in the story, a town named Halls in Vidar, Odinson's district, was sacked by the Jotun. Vidar is on scene to render aid and defend the townsfolk. He also summoned help from Gladsheim. Odin had arrived home at roughly the same time as this attack on Vithi. After some discussion with Frigg, Odin decides to ride out to his son's aid. Hodor, son of Odin and Frigg, and brother to Baldur, and half-brother of Vidar and Thor, is with his significant other, Alara, in a large town called Ifington. Quite how Hodor plays into the story is as yet unclear, but it may have something to do with his reluctance to return and speak with his father. We've also met Loki Laufison, his wife Sigyn, and his two sons, Vali and Narfi. Loki in particular appears to be up to something, but we don't know what. Yet. And there's one last POV character in the book, the Jotun Vathrudnir. He doesn't appear until chapter 21. And if I had the book to write over, which is not something I'm going to do... I try to get him to appear earlier in the story. I remember trying to do that when originally writing the book, but I just couldn't figure out how, so he appears when the story events require it. Okay, that's all the basic plot stuff, so let's get to the meat of the episode and talk about what I was doing with respect to the myths and the world building. And if you don't happen to know that particular term, world building simply refers to creating uh, the world in which the characters inhabit. Sometimes it's pretty easy, like you set your story in the present-day world. Cars, smartphones, cities, etc. Everybody has that basic grounding in what the world is. But in fantasy and sci-fi novels, depending on what the author's trying to do and how different those worlds are from our frame of reference, it can be more difficult or more involved or, or what have you. But that's really all part of the fun of not only diving into these books, but also in, in writing them. Chapter 11. There are multiple elements in this chapter, and I will start out with the Norns, who, for now in the book, are mysterious figures. But most likely the word and the concept, at least, are known to most readers. I won't discuss them in this episode in any detail, because they figure directly in some of the upcoming chapters, and so I'll I'll kind of do a deeper dive on them at that point. We have the Franangur, which is a river and a waterfall, at least in my book. and In the myths, it's mostly just a river. Loki's house is built right near it. Angerboda. This is Loki's first wife, with whom he had three children, who are now all lost. And note that Loki's current wife is Sigyn, who's the woman in these scenes. She is an Asir woman, and together they have two sons, Vali and Narfi. Sigyn's name, according to uh, Symex Dictionary, is composed of two root words. Sig, meaning victory, and this is the same kind of prefix or root that's in Sigfather, and Vina, which means something like 
girlfriend or girl hyphen friend as it's put in, in his dictionary. So maybe her name as a whole means something like woman who is the friend of victory, which if you know the myths doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Sigyn unless there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know about her, which is entirely possible. Their son Nar- Nari is also sometimes called Narfi. He is definitely Loki's son. It is not clear what his name means according to uh, Simex Dictionary. It could mean narrow or it could mean corpse since there's a kenning that places Nari slash Narfi in the land of the dead. Vali, however, is, well, it's, it's possible that Snorri, who includes Vali as one of Loki's sons, actually made a mistake. Uh, Vali should not be Loki's son. He may have, in fact, confused him with the son of Odin, who is named Vali, meaning that Vali is Odin's son, but Snorri said that Vali was actually uh, Loki's son. And the reason why they're in my books, both Vali and Nari, I went with Narfi, is because I didn't, at the time that I was writing all this stuff, I didn't realize that there was confusion, confusion about Vali's parentage until I had Kinsman Die mostly written. So I could have gone back and written him out of the books, but I felt that his inclusion as Loki's son actually worked pretty well for the story I was telling. And I'd already determined how I would figure out with or how I would deal with the name confusion, which in, in this set of books doesn't arise until book three, which I'm currently working on. And even then in that, in that book, the, con, uh, the confusion is minimal. This chapter also references Odin breaking an oath that he had sworn with Loki. The only source which details that oath is in Lokasena, verse 9, which is Loki speaking. Remember, Odin, in olden days that we both our blood have mixed. Then didst thou promise no ale to pour unless it were brought for us both. In the footnotes to that particular verse, Bellows states that there is no other source that gives the specific oath that was sworn. But it does imply blood brotherhood and the, the mixing of blood, and we have that same tradition today. And there'll be more on this oath in a future recap episode as well. I also wrote about a spear that was caught and returned. And this is a reference to the Icelandic sagas in which the heroes actually do that. And in the movie Northman, Amleth does it as well. And I could do it, but I just don't feel like it right now. And then there's a reference to the fruit Idun tended. This is the same fruit that Hodor eats, which is the fruit of Yggdrasil. And even Loki thinking about the fruit is an implicit reference to the time that he helped a Jotun named Thiasi steal both the fruit and Idun from Asgard. And, and this story is hugely important in the myths as a whole and as part of not only my backstory, but also the current story and Uh, the future story. Chapter 12. Hodor is hanging out with Alara. She is totally my invention. For some reason, when I originally wrote her, I made her name Hlara with an H at the beginning, which would have led to scenes with Hodor, Hlara, and her brother, Hlaven, which would have been completely stupid. I don't even understand why I thought that was a good idea to begin with, but uh, I changed her name. And I think it rolls a little bit better off the tongue now, particularly now that I'm having to say it. And her brother is not around that much, so I just kind of left his name alone. The name of Hodor's horse is Kona, which does not mean coffee. It's not Hawaiian, but in Old Norse, it means woman. 
Kona has been Hoder's constant companion for many winters, which will become more clear as the story progresses. And my idea here was to work towards some kind of subtle poignancy in Hoder's character, which I have just ruined by drawing attention to it. And finally, this chapter also alludes to how old Hoder actually is. Chapter 13. Vidar jokingly says that Kanoin must have some of Heimdall's blood. This is an allusion to the myth in which Rieger, who could be Heimdall, is the father of all men and different classes of men, from thralls and jarls and carls and all that kind of stuff. As I think I mentioned in another episode, I don't think that Heimdall fits that role, nor does Odin, not really, but it's an allusion just the same to that, that myth. With respect to the magic system and the world building, I have shaman using birds to see as they kind of circle above the battlefield in which uh, Vidar and his warband are engaged and kind of get nailed by all those spears flying down from the ridge. Just in general, this is an example of me trying to make the enemies believably strong, believably smart, and do things that the heroes themselves would do if the position was reversed. And just kind of as a side note, as I have mentioned previously, in my books, the Asir and Jotun are all from the same original tribe of people. And there was a civil war that, at least in my backstory, that caused the groups, the, that single tribe, to split. Odin took some of folks away, and they became Asir. Burgelmir, who is sometimes called a frost giant, or frost Jotun, took some others, and then... At least in my book, I have another giant, another Jotun, named Thruthgelmir, who took some others. And there'll be more on this later, but I just wanted to at least bring it up right now. It is backstory at this point, and largely remains backstory, but it does become important later on. Since I'm talking a little bit about shamans, I also wanted to bring up the topic of shapeshifting which the shamans are in a way doing in this particular scene. They are shifting their minds, their thoughts, their spirits from their physical bodies into the birds. But in Norse myth, that's not the only way that shapeshifting can happen. Shapeshifting can also mean physically changing one's body, your physicality, your hammer, as the Norse called it, H-A-M-R. And this is Michael J. Fox going Teen Wolf. The other type of shape-shifting means that the shaman or the magic practitioner shifts their mind or their thoughts, their huger, into another physical body, in this case the birds. And this is more like spiritual possession or sending your thoughts out and inhabiting the body, maybe not possessing it, but looking through their eyes and speaking through their mouth, that kind of thing. And note that huger is the same root word as hugen, which is, or who is, one of Odin's ravens. And it, that, that root word, that word means thoughts or spirit. And in my books, shapeshifters can do both the moving mind or thoughts into another body and physically change their, their shapes. In this chapter and in several of the others within this kind of segment of chapters, We've seen both Odin and Vidar using the tools of Sather. Some of those tools include the distaff, a spindle, thread, and silver shears. In the myths, there are multiple ways in which magic is used, six of which, not including Sather, include Gondor, which is identified as kind of a mind emissary where the, the practitioner sends his or her mind outward into the world, Galdor, 
which we've seen here, songs, and uh, what we have not yet quite seen is the making of items. Necromancy, which involves the practitioner descending either physically or spiritually into the underworld, channeling uh, spirits through him or herself, raising those spirits or raising the bodies of the dead. Rune magic. And there are different types of runes in, in the myths. There's the Asya rune. There are Jotun runes. There may be others as well. Shapeshifting, which we've discussed a little bit, and I've split that into greater and lesser types of shapeshifting, which is not quite what I described earlier, but that distinction will become more apparent in my second book. And then there are the Disir, which are the greater and lesser spirits that inhabit the, inhabit the world and the spirit realm as well. In both this chapter and in chapter 15, both Odin and Vidar send the thread, the witch thread outward while singing. And in Odin's case, he's kind of weaving the thread through the horses in the column or sending it through his wolves and through his ravens. Whereas Vidar is sending it out in more of like a net that he uses to protect the townsfolk and his warriors and himself as well. And as I was trying to identify what spells, what types of magic could be used. One key source was the Havamal. So when Vidar is sending out the magic to protect the townsfolk and the warriors and himself, I was kind of playing off verse 149 of the Havamal, which reads, and this is Odin describing some of the charms, the galders, the songs that only he knows. But obviously Vidar knows it as well. And kind of the idea here is that Odin is teaching Vidar magic in in Sort of the same way that Odin himself learned magic, both from his uncle and from Freya. At least these two different types of magic. Uh, Sather in particular, and these songs, the Galder. And I've kind of incorporated Galder and Sather in kind of a similar manner, because I felt that there needed to be some type of power source for the magic that was being used. And in this particular case, it was Witch Thread, and it continues to be for certain types of magic. But verse 149 of the Havamal reads... A third I know, if great is my need of fetters to hold my foe, blunt do I make mine enemy's blade, nor bites his sword or staff. I interpreted those last two verses a bit liberally so that the spears shot from the ballista, the spear throwers, would not harm those they struck. In chapter 14, I mentioned that Vidar rides under the banner of the fox. This is my invention, and it alludes to another story I've written that is not yet published in any form. Back when I started writing Kinsman Die, I wrote a lot of material that was kind of all over the place. I was basically brain dumping and caught up in kind of a creative outflow, not like drunk Odin, but I was definitely writing a lot and trying to learn how to write as I was doing it, and I was trying to find my pathway, my path forward through the myths and figure out how to tell a story or what the story was that I wanted to wanted to tell. So for like a couple of years, I ended up writing. And after that period, I kind of went through a consolidation period where I was editing and reviewing and rewriting and all that kind of different stuff. So I have a series, or at least one book, about a boy named Rowan and his fox companion, Bryn. And I have another series about Svartalvar Smiths named Sindri and Broker. Um, I haven't necessarily talked about them specifically, but they're the two smiths who, at Loki's insistence and at Loki's behest, made the various implements that are used by the Asir. Gungnir, Skidbladnir, Mjolnir, the boar that Gulenbursti that Freyr rides, 
few other items. Uh, Draupnir, the golden ring that Odin wears that recreates itself. During this creative process, pretty much all of these stories are intertwined with one another. And I was trying to make links where links didn't necessarily exist or trying to play one off the other, and it really wasn't quite working. So as I edited out all those different stories, I ended up with kind of a body of work that I can go back to whenever I finish the third book in this series and hopefully create a new story around. Also in this chapter, getting back to Kinsman Die, I mentioned Octalmer, which is another military rank that I made up out of out of an old Norse word that means brace as it re- relates to a ship. So a piece of wood or something that braces one against the other. You know, reading back through it, I don't like the word or its use, and maybe I'll go back through and retcon the entire thing at some point. But for right now, it's going to stay because I don't really have a good way of, I didn't want to use like sergeant or lieutenant or captain, as I think I mentioned in one of the other recap episodes, because those words just don't fit in this universe. And I didn't know what else to call the person who is in command of a small group of warriors that comprised one wall of a shield wall of the 110 men and or women who comprise an entire warband. So Octomer falls in the category of something that seemed like a good idea at the time. So next up is a, another big topic uh, that revolves around Sleipnir, who has eight legs. Sleipnir is, in my book, the daughter of the builder's horse, Svadalfari, and Loki, who shape-shifted into a mare in order to lure the builder's horse away. And this is an allusion to the myth of the builder, which is in Gilfaginning, which is part of Snorri's Prosetta. And basically, that story in that story, the Asir wanted to build a defensive wall around Asgard. A dude shows up and says, I can build that wall for you, but I want Freya for my wife and the sun and moon in payment. The Asir, and I, it's curious to me that Snorri does not identify which Asir actually end up making this deal, but the Asir agree to the terms, and because Loki advised it, the Asir also allow the builder to use a stallion named Svadalfari in constructing the wall. And because of this, that stallion and how strong it was and how much it could move, the builder was going to ex- uh, succeed in building the wall by the deadline that was established, whatever that was which meant that the Asir would have to honor their agreement with him. And they didn't want to do that, so the Asir turned on Loki and threatened him. And I'm quoting now, Loki became frightened. Then he swore oaths that he would so contrive that the right, meaning the builder, should lose his wages, cost him, meaning Loki, what it might. So Loki was threatened with, we don't know what, but it was enough to make Loki so frightened that he said, all right, I'm going to fix it no matter what it costs me. This shows the Asir in a pretty crappy light, as many of the other myths do as well. So Loki transforms himself into a mare, lures, lures the builder's stallion away, you know, chasing him through the woods and stuff. The implication being that the mare is in heat and the stallion, you know, wants to get it on. And this prevents the the builder from completing the contract on time. And then coincidentally, Thor comes back. He was out killing Jotun in the east, and he kills the builder, who it turns out was a Jotun. The Gilfaginning then says that, and I quote, Loki had such dealings with Svadalfari that somewhat later he gave birth to a foal, which was gray and had eight feet. 
That's not really explained why Sleipnir has eight feet. Also in Gilfaginning, I think it is that it's mentioned that Sleipnir has runes etched into her teeth, whether that was at birth or not is, is not told. And Sleipnir's, the name itself means slipper or sliding one. In his dictionary, Zemex says that the story of Loki giving birth to Sleipnir was probably Snorri's invention, but I haven't seen any other example of that cited elsewhere. Chapter 15. In this chapter, Vidar uses Sather to protect his warband, as I mentioned before. And he also invokes the runes binding his Fulga and provides a description of how Bearsarks are created. Essentially, and I think I've alluded to this before, Odin captured and chained Disir, which became a Fulgia, which was in being bound to a person, made the person into a Bearsark. This is also the first mention of the Gnungagap, which is kind of a cool word, tough to say, but it can be defined or viewed as the void before creation. But according to Zemex Dictionary, in which he cites the scholar Jan de Vries, who argues that the term is more likely to mean something like the void filled with magical and creative powers rather than the yawning void, which we would probably call something like an abyss. However, in another article, Henning Kure, a Norse scholar, and the article, the title is In the Beginning Was the Scream, disputes the de Vries definition, saying, Jan de Vries De Vries identified this something as Zauberkraft, or magical power, in an argument that seems to lack reflection on the actual role of magic in Norse myth and society. In my opinion, this being Kure speaking, we need to take the meaning of Ginungar one step further than just magic and see it as denoting the encounter with the incredible. As such, be it Zauberkraft, sacred mysteries, or trickery, by impenetrable illusions like the ginning of Gilfi. The prefix gin, G-I-N-N, likewise denotes not magic, but something beyond comprehension, like ginhilog, incredibly holy, more holy than we can grasp, or ginrunar, inconceivable secrets. This accords well with the description of Ginungagap by a, a series of negations. It is a place beyond description in conceivable, positive terms. The Gap of Enigmas. And all that was uh, a quote from the article in the beginning was the scream. In my book, the in my cosmology, the Ganunga Gap is kind of like space in a way, the void, which became occupied by all of creation. It's where spirits go to die and where they come from when they are reborn. Hence, the characters say things like, back to the gap meaning that person died, their spirit has gone back to the gap. And there's more to my cosmology as it kind of plays out, both in terms of backstory and in terms of the story moving forward. But there's some chapters that deal specifically with characters, particularly Odin, seeing that Ganungagap in all its glory. And I will kind of discuss more of that stuff when, when I get to it. Well, folks, that's all I have for this recap episode. I hope you found it interesting. If there's anything in particular you'd like more detail on, please let me know and I'll see what I can do. Reach out to me via the various social platforms that I'm basically never on, or just email me. I will read them. 
And my email again is mattbishopwrites at gmail.com. And just like in the last recap, here are, are another three verses from Beth Ruth Nismal and a little bit of uh, discussion of them at the end. Verse 5. The wisdom then of the giant wise forth did he fare to try. He found the hall of the father of Im, and in forthwith went Ig. Odin spake, Vathrudnir, hail, to thy hall am I come. For thyself I fain would see, and first would I ask if wise thou art. Or, giant, all wisdom hast won. Vathrudnir spake, Who is the man that speaks to me, here in my lofty hall? Forth from our dwelling thou never shalt fare, unless wiser than I thou art. And here is Larrington's translation, because all these these and thous gets a little weird and uh, difficult to understand. And note that in verse 5, this is not Odin or Vathrunir speaking, it's the narrator. Verse 5. Then Odin went to try the wisdom of the all-wise giant. To the hall he came, which Eames' father owned. Odin went inside. Verse 6. Odin said, Greetings, Vathrunir. Now have I come into the hall to see you in person. This I want to know first, whether you are wise or very wise, giant. Verse 7. Vathrudnir said, What man is this who addresses me in hostile fashion in my hall? May you not come out of our halls alive unless you should be the wiser one. In the Bellows translation, I, th- I think it's noted that the father of Im, I am, is Vathrudnir, but nobody knows who Im is. In ZMAX Dictionary, which is kind of my go-to stuff uh, for stuff of this type, there is no entry for Im, but there is one for Emer. I-M-R, which is a female Jotun, and the name could mean something like Dark One, but it might also refer back to another name, which is Imdr, which is spelled I-M-D-R, who is also a female Jotun and possibly one of the nine mothers of Heimdall, which makes things even more confusing if that's actually who the narrator is referring to. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.